You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Good afternoon and welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm your host, Tedra Smith. Today, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Carmi Johnson, Dr. Erica Kears, and Mr. Marcus DeBiase. Welcome. Thank you all again for being here with us today. And I would like to begin this conversation by having each of you introduce yourself and tell us about what you do. Beginning with Dr. Carmi Johnson. Hello, I'm Dr. Carmi Johnson. I'm an assistant professor here at the UAB School of Nursing. I'm also a psych mental health nurse practitioner. I have two faculty practices, one at the PATH Clinic. I'm helping people with uh, depression, anxiety, and chronic diseases like diabetes. And the other faculty practice, I'm the wellness coordinator for the Nurse Family Partnership of Central Alabama, helping moms um, have, you know, produce uh, functional adults. Thank you so much. Dr. Erica Kears. Hi, I'm Dr. Erica Kears. I'm an associate professor at the UAB School of Nursing and a psych mental health nurse practitioner. I am in clinical practice at Auburn Psychological Wellness Center, and I'm also a medication consultant on the Alabama Psychiatric Medication Review Team. Thank you. Dr. Marcus DeBiase. Hi, I'm Dr. Marcus DeBiase. I'm the psychiatric nurse practitioner for mental health here at the UAB Student Health and Wellness Center. Thank you so much. We all know there have been drastic changes over the past year, year and a half now, in people's lifestyles because of the COVID-19 pandemic. What trends have you seen in regards to mental health with the pediatric population as well as the adult population? And I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Kears. Absolutely. I've noticed some trends in the child and adolescent population, especially in regards to feeling socially isolated, Individuals who already had some social anxiety might have felt comfortable initially, but then as we're kind of moving through the pandemic and and there's an expectation to begin socializing more again, it's been very difficult for those adolescents. I've also seen some social media influenced trends, uh, an increase in a new onset tick disorder in adolescent females, and then seeing other, other trends, for example, an increase in adolescents thinking they may have dissociative identity disorder when they do not. So it kind of an unusual trend in mental health issues in that population, as well as a pretty significant decline in grades for students who otherwise had been doing well academically prior to the pandemic. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned social isolation. I actually read an article last night that was comparing this pandemic to the Spanish flu. Dr. Piazzi, do you care to comment on that? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, the population I see here, the overwhelming majority range from 18 to 24 years of age. And uh, what I think that this pandemic brought in terms of its impact on mental health issues is just the culmination of a perfect storm that has been brewing already, okay? Even before the pandemic, there have been some alarming trends being observed, particularly among those born after the year 1995. And you know, and if you trace back what major events happened, 
you can see that these are the folks that uh, by the age of 10 already had a social media account, okay? So, uh, you know, I remember a few years back, and I'm sure y'all are going to relate to that, seeing the first student here that was born in the year 2000. <laughs> and uh, every mental health professional that I talked to has seen, you know, a, a rather rapid onset of changes in uh, the way they perceive the world, their resilience and uh, their aspirations and whatnot. But I like to compare uh, the uh, environment surrounding and the time surrounding the pandemic of 1918, the influenza pandemic that uh, raged across the world to what is happening now to kind of use it as a springboard to compare and contrast uh, these different characteristics, okay? If you think about someone that was born in the year 1900, okay, uh, people were acquainted with grief. Infant mortality was much higher than what it is now and many chronic diseases that we can easily treat today, you had no way of treating them, so everybody, pretty much had lost a loved one in their family. It was not unusual for you to even expect that somebody that you love would pass away, a child or an adult. Uh, you also, you know, in a sense, have a, had a, a very limited array of choices as far as what information you get, what kind of a form of entertainment you, you get. Before the, uh, you know, Henry Ford revolutionized uh, the modes of transportation, people, the majority of people wouldn't have ventured 50 miles away from their home. So people were in a way more contented with less, as it were. Uh, you know, I still, to this day, I talk to all the people that tell me that for Christmas, well, all they got was an orange. <laughs> so I imagine that being a happy and contented <laughs> with getting an orange, right? So there's an old adage that says that if we were going to be satisfied with anything, we would have been satisfied long ago, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm just painting a picture here of what the zeitgeist was back then, so we can compare and contrast how the, 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 the culture, the, the, the environment, the way of thinking changed with respect to the response of a pandemic type of calamity, okay? People back then had no safety net to rely on, so people really did have to rely either on their families or even institutions of charity and all that. Uh, nobody lived alone back then, okay? Pretty much, unless you, you were super rich or uh, you were some sort of a religious ermine, uh, everybody had to, to hang out together. So uh, <clears throat> what we see there, I like that slide. I would like to keep that for a moment. These are university students circa 1920. And here we have a student here, uh, a modern student, as it were. As you can see, they were all congregated together. Uh, they spent time together. Uh, you know, whereas compared nowadays, it's very common, and I think you're all going to relate to that. Very often I ask here, of course, when I see a student, so what is your living situation like? 
And the answer that I most commonly uh, get, oh, well, I have roommates. And okay, do you get along well with your roommates? And the standard answer is, yes, uh, you know, we just stand, stay out, out of each other's ways. Meaning, you know, everybody goes to his or her room or their room or, and uh, they just do their own thing, okay? Uh, so isolation, yes, isolation is being a problem. Uh, and that obviously has only been amplified with uh, the confinement measures, okay? There is no substitute for actual interaction where uh, a, a Zoom can only go so far. A Zoom meeting, an audiovisual type of encounter can only go so far. There is many cues and elements that are captured in a very primitive way by our uh, the, the primitive parts of our brain, you can fool that, okay? Of course, picking up the phone and calling someone, yes, it helps mitigate that. Having a Zoom meeting where you're actually talking to someone mm -hmm. helps to mitigate that, but that only can go so far, okay? So here we mm -hmm. have the element of isolation, the element of resilience being contrasted, okay? Now, let me make that perfectly clear. I'm not saying that people that lived in that age were intrinsically better or, or worse than the people that live in this age okay you could easily transplant a person from here and put in there and vice versa and get the same outcome uh but uh if you think about another characteristic of the times uh you find that uh you know substance use okay that used to be a marginal thing uh, back in, in those days. Of course, you had the roaring 20s, right, the flappers, but that was an upper-class thing to do and not that long-lived, okay? So today we have, uh, uh, it's absolutely mainstream, the, the routine and, 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 and even daily chronic use of substance. I have sometimes, as a, almost an afterthought here when I have a session, oh, by the way, I use cannabis two, three times a day, uh, which used to be a marginal thing. I, I personally, let me put it this way. I, I think there are three or four great enemies of uh, mental stability, trauma, particularly childhood trauma, but of course you have interpersonal trauma as well as an adult that I think is one of the great enemies. Substance use, in isolation, okay? And uh, uh, I do believe that these characteristics have been, am I going, am I talking too much? <laughs> no, no, but you brought up a great point in regards to substance abuse. And I wanted to um, allow Carmi to jump in here about substance abuse and maybe some of the other trends that we've seen. I've heard a lot about um, some intimate partner violence and then child abuse that seems like it down is down, but it may actually be increased because the kids were out of school. So, you know, there were not a lot of other adults to see the child abuse going on. So Carmi, if you would like to kind of comment on that. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I think that you bring up a great point that we see um, not just in mental health, but all of medicine, the idea of incident versus diagnosis right? Just because something isn't diagnosed doesn't mean it's not occurring. And you're right, because the children are not in school. 
it is harder for us to diagnose. Often it'll be a teacher, it'll be someone else that notices these bruises, notices a child is isolating more, not as gregarious as they used to be. And then that gets brought to the attention. Now we don't have that safety net for kids of, of having a trusted adult that they can either talk to or that notices something about them. We're seeing it too with intimate partner violence with other adults. When you are made to isolate, and we always say that that kind of the, the first phase of intimate partner violence is not the violence of the physical. It is the isolation, right? It is separating people mm -hmm. from trusted resources. We're having to do that naturally. We're being made to isolate. So how then do these people that the first steps are already in place for them to, to be separated from their family or being separated from other people that they might be able to confide in. So we are seeing increased rates of that related to, to the tremendous amount of financial stressors that are happening. And intimate partner violence cuts across all socioeconomic lines, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we do see in terms of the reporting of it, the um, incidents of it being brought to the authorities more with people that are in um, what we would call non-essential you know, non yet essential jobs. And so I think that we are seeing very much an increase in intimate partner violence, very much an increase in abuse, very much an increase in substance abuse, particularly legal substances like alcohol. Um, people often will drink in order to, you know, they're just like, oh, I just, I couldn't sleep. It's this, it numbs me. What they don't realize is you're already depressed because of the situation. This is a depressant. It's making it worse. But people don't formulate it that way because they think it's legal. They think it's helpful for them. Um, and so what we've always said with substance abuse is if someone tells you they're taking five drinks a day, you can go ahead and double that. It's probably in reality 10. Um, so people have gotten more savvy with that too. But I do think the actual occurrence of those things is much higher than is being reported and it is being mm -hmm. reported as increased. Thank you, thank you. I also wonder about different populations. You know, we, we all have different responses to different circumstances, but there's also a lot of commonality. Erica, what have you seen related to specific populations and trends that primarily target one specific population. As I just briefly touched on earlier, there have been some unusual, at least unusual from a, a diagnostic standpoint, unusual new occurrences or new trends. So one of those is has been dubbed the TikTok tick. Uh, and it's basically a new onset tick disorder, almost exclusively in adolescent females with no neurological basis. So I, I can't give you a, a, a good explanation for that other than to say there seems to be uh, an influence and maybe even an encouragement to uh, you have some attention from these different types of, of disorders. And something that was mentioned earlier was that social isolation piece. So if everyone is kind of home and they're sort of socially isolated, the adolescent population needs their peers. They care more about the attention and affection and appreciation of their peers than anyone else that they're coming in contact with. 
that's developmentally normal. So if these isolated adolescents are using social media as a means to feel connected with their peers, there's a lot of opportunity for them to be influencing each other through things like TikTok videos, Facebook posts, Instagram posts, which of course, as we understand uh, as adults, this can put a lot of unhealthy comparisons and expectations on ourselves. So what we see in the adolescent population is Uh, A video may be posted where the particular adolescent may say they have a a disorder and may even be able to on-demand display symptoms of this disorder. And then we're seeing trends in an increase in new onset of these disorders that don't make sense from uh, a medical standpoint. We can't find a medical explanation for these symptoms. The TikTok tick is just one example. As I mentioned earlier, I'm also seeing an increase in patients reporting that they think or they have self-diagnosed themselves with dissociative identity disorder. Uh, which those of us in my field would recognize as extremely rare, especially if the individual has no history of any sort of psychotic symptoms or anything that would uh, make sense with a normal progression for that disorder. So some unusual clinical presentations uh, over the course of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I know people have had a lot of time on their hands. There's been a increase in use of social media. So I can see how the Googling and that idle time can cause people to to self-diagnose and not seek out appropriate care. I know, Carmi, in a previous conversation, you mentioned there were phases to this pandemic. Do you care to explain and elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, just just with my observation, I would say that there were kind of phases that we expected things. At first, when we first found out about COVID, right, we were sort of in survival mode. We were told, oh, we need to isolate, we need to do these things in order to flatten the curve. And I can remember when we, when we all thought that was going to be a month, right? When we're just like, this should be done in a month. If we do this, this will be fine. So we went into survival mode, having that mild anxiety that, again, is usually pretty helpful. And we thought we can pitch in and do this. What we saw with that sometimes is people that already were prone or had some pre-existing anxiety or depression issues, that came more to the fore in those initial phases. As we settled in to the pandemic during COVID, when there wasn't seeming to be a light at the end of the tunnel, that's when the isolation, those anxiety symptoms, depression, again, worsened. That's where, when we talk about the stress diathesis model, that it is normal animal behavior to respond to stressors in certain ways. If I, you know, always think we we act like anxiety is a bad thing. Anxiety is what made us, when I heard rumblings in a bush, when I decided I I don't know what that is, I'm a little anxious about that. Let me not put my face in that bush so a, you know, a saber-toothed tiger can bite my face off. That made me survive. Anxiety was helpful. But if I think that every rumbling in the bush is a tiger, what's going to happen is cortisol levels are going to go through the roof. I'm going to, my immune system is not going to be able to to deal with that output. Energy is going to be moved to different places away where it needs to be. So again, we're going to see chronic stress on the body and chronic stress on the body is going to lead to the body eventually breaking down. Um, And so that's what we were seeing some with COVID. Again, people just could not maintain that level of stress. The body doesn't allow us to. The other thing that happened with COVID during that time is I think we thought that what would happen with COVID is is the way that it was sort of uh, 
presented was you were either got COVID and were completely fine or you got COVID and you died. And nobody was talking about those long hauler symptoms those symptoms that have a subtlety that have stayed with people for a while. And only now is some of that body of research coming out. I think that is the other thing is even when people survive, they're just like, but I don't know what the rest of my life is going to look like with this. That again is part of that stress. That first transition back, I think everyone, you know, I expected it to turn into the roaring twenties where everyone's just like, we're out, you know, being so excited about this and people were, but then there was also this idea of what is the expectation? I will say for myself, it was easier for me to go into survival mode. When I was told we've got to go online, we've got to do these things. I was like, all right, I can do that because that's what we need to do to help people and to survive. When it was just like, now you can get back out there. I didn't have instructions for what that looked like. I forgot what that looked like. And so the expectation of, am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing this? I'm, I'm still a little scared. Why am I being scared? I think those ideas of control, after 18 months of not being able to control very much in our lives, people either toggled one of two ways. They either wanted to hyper control things, and that's where I'm seeing again, anxiety, OCD. Or they were just like, I don't, I don't know what I can control. And then the, the extreme ambivalence with things that mm -hmm. almost apathy, the idea of I have been swimming for so long, I, all I can do is float mm -hmm. and what that feels like to people. Mm -hmm. Now with this new Delta variant, if you mm -hmm. were not exhausted by this process before, you 100% are now. So I think that that exhaustion that, you know, we talk about fight, flight or freeze. Nobody knows mm -hmm. what they're going to do within these moments. And, it, and, and no one does exactly one thing. So I think within those three kind of parameters, the fight, I think people either fight using organiza organizational things. That's where I see anxiety. That's where I also see aggression. You know, people being very aggressive with how they approach situations. Um, again, flight, I, I just don't know what to do. You know, or, or they're just like, I can't make a decision right now. And the freeze. I've made a decision. My decision is to do absolutely nothing. Um, and so I think that that's, we're going to see, I think, a lot of new diagnoses related to these things coming up in mental health. We're already seeing them now. Mm -hmm. Erica mentioned some great ones. Um, one that occurred to me is I had to get much better with diagnosing somatic syndromes. Mm -hmm. Like when people are like, I, I cough. Do you think that's COVID? I think that's a cough. Um, but then all kinds of things within that. So I think there's, there's going to be, again, um, I love that people are acknowledging their mental health during this time. But I think, again, it's, it's running along phases. And with this new Delta variant, we're just going to see how people respond to that after, again, over 18 months of this process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I definitely agree. You know, we went through that phase of, you know, staying at home, masking to this back to new normal, whatever that looks like. So that's caused a lot of fear and anxiety in people. So how have you all seen that affect mental health? And Marcus, Erica, either one of you want to address that? Well, uh, with my students here, I've noticed uh, <clears throat> that many of them that had been stabilized uh, they got destabilized and uh, a significant portion of those was due to the fact that without a clear structure 
without a set time to get up and go to class and a set up time to meet, to study and discuss. They just couldn't manage their time anymore. Okay, and again, I keep touching on this point of social media and all that because I believe it's a mental health crisis. I believe the uh, harm that social media is doing to young people will be a matter of public health as serious as the matter of cigarette smoking was. And uh, if you look at that figure of one of the uh, creators of Facebook, he acknowledged that they were exploiting the dopaminergic rush that comes with every little bell, every little notification that comes. So why social media and why am I bringing that up here? Because we need to be able to select and sustain attention in order to carry out the executive functions that surround an enterprise like getting an assignment done, okay? So look, take a look at what they said. These are the guys that uh, invented social media pretty much. And if you look at that figure where there are some story that ran in the New York Times that the Silicon Valley guys, they themselves, they demand, they put in a contract that the nannies for their children do not allow them to have any screen time and keep their own devices out of sight. Well, <laughs> that says it all. But what we're talking about here, folks, is uh, that breakdown of structure, that breakdown of a set schedule caused a lot of people to be completely lost. And with that lack of a sense of accomplishment, you just lose your self-esteem very easily. So that was a big, big contributor. I think on the other side, of course, the anxiety inherent of not knowing where this is going, if there's not going to be a catastrophic, cataclysmic resolution to all this also will, will cause anxiety. So again, I think it, it, it speaks of a perfect storm of elements coming together to produce these things. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Eric, I wanted to come back to you because I know you take care of a lot of a younger population. And, you know, as schools are getting ready to start back, some actually started this week. What do you foresee as some of the mental health challenges? A lot of the children were home all year doing virtual learning. Some did a little mix. What do you foresee as some of those challenges we may encounter in regards to mental health? Absolutely, yes. So first I want to say I am very excited that many and most children can go back in person. It has been detrimental to children's mental health and academic performance to have entirely virtual schooling. And it just it just makes the disparities that more apparent. Not everyone has someone who can be at home helping the child log on. Not everyone has uh, access to the internet. Uh, so our children have suffered uh, by having to do this virtual schooling. So I do want to say it's very positive that children are able to return to that in-person schooling there with a teacher for those that are able to. And I also want to say children are handling this better than adults. 
So they're not arguing about whether or not to wear a mask or the changes in their classroom schedule, even so much not arguing about having to miss field trips. I know my kindergartner uh, last year didn't have the opportunity to do the typical field trips that they would have, and he was not complaining. Children will see what the parents say and how the parents respond and then, of course, mimic that. But I do want to encourage us all by saying that children are handling this better and with more respect for their peers than many adults. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, social anxiety can be a little bit worse at this point for children who have been home and now they're the expectations have suddenly shifted. So they probably or perhaps went from being home all the time just with close family or maybe a sitter. And now they're going back with a teacher, a new authority figure, a new schedule. Uh, many children have not been on good sleep schedules over the course of the summer and the pandemic. And of course, sleep is a habit and sleep is essential for attention and focus and behavior management. Uh, so I think that we will see some uh, increase in behavioral issues, at least initially, as children are transitioning back. Uh, increased anxiety because the rules keep changing for a lot of these children. The expectations keep changing. And I think we will see a lot of catch up for academic performance, especially for the children who um, were most disadvantaged over the course of this past year. I think they're going to need a lot more time and attention uh, and support in the classroom setting just to be able to get back to a baseline for this academic year. I also expect to see a lot more symptoms that look like ADHD that are not ADHD. So that distractibility, that having a hard time sitting still for long periods of time. We just have to remember many of these children were not expected to perform in this way over the past year. So having these new expectations would be difficult for anyone, us adults as well, especially if you've been working remotely. So we need to give our kiddos a lot of grace as they transition back and time for them to adjust to uh, being back in the classroom and the anxiety and distractibility that can go along with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree, not only as a pediatric provider, but also as a mom having a seven-year-old who was home for part of the year, was able to go back for a short while, but getting them back on those routines and back to use to that authority figure, you know, has been definitely a challenge and will probably continue to be this first part of this school year. So giving them a little bit of grace, I agree with. You brought up a good comment about the mask, and I know there's been some stigma associated with wearing the mask, especially since, you know, for a while there was, you don't have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated. Now going back to wearing the mask, whether you're vaccinated or not, and there's been a lot of stereotyping, a lot of stairs if you have a mask. What has been your experience with that, Carmi? So I think, and again, this goes back to those waves of things. You're absolutely right. When we were first starting, I think there was some resistance. Mm -hmm. Then it was, you know, mandated we should do that. Then those uh, people that got vaccinated were like, no, you don't have to wear it. Now we're back to it. I think this goes back to the idea of, of control. There was so much that I can't control. I don't know what the right answers have been. And I think people are trying, you know, Science does. Science provides us with the best information in the moment, and I think people want absolutes. And I'm like, that's not, that's not what science does. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that the masking, I think people, and it's funny because Erica mentioned the kids. I think someone had said, oh, you know, it's it's hard for kids to wear those masks. I was like. The children cope better with those things than adults do. Do you know children are you know? So I think that 
I guess my viewpoint, just my personal one, is we've been doing this for a while now. And so just put it on. Like, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. I think that people are the exhaustion of it. And, you know, when you've heard various phrases like people who wear masks, virtue signal, I, I will say that the hardest part of the pandemic is, or one of the harder parts is, we're not talking about just COVID-19. We're talking about some other major things that have been happening in our country at the same time. A lot of uh, social, political, racial unrest, and those things have gotten bundled in together. And as healthcare professionals, I think that it is important to try to tease out as much as you can with that, to acknowledge where people's perspectives are, to reiterate that within this realm, of healthcare, this is what we are looking at. I think that's a good way to maybe bridge some of that. Do you know, I, I let people vent about how they feel about it. Absolutely. You can, you know, feelings are never right or wrong. It's behaviors that I look at. I'm like, you can tell me you feel this way about the mask. And I, you know, sure, but are you gonna wear it? What are your behaviors going to be? And what's the benefit of those behaviors to yourself, to your loved ones, to the community at large? And that's been kind of the way that I approach it, is I, is I let people kind of have their ambivalence about it. Mm -hmm. But then we talk about the benefits, which is basically the, the crux of motivational interview. Yes, Right. We haven't talked about um, access to care very much. We know there's been a lot of social isolation, a lot of di new diagnoses or, or people that feel like they're probably having symptoms of mental health. But how do we help people navigate, you know, who to seek out for care? There's, you know, you, we have our counselors, we have our psychologists, we have our psychiatrists. How do we help people understand who to seek service from? And Erica, I'll let you begin. Absolutely. So there, there's a range of mental health providers and people you can see for different services. Even to many of us in the mental health community, it can be overwhelming. Is it an LPC? Is it a clinical psychologist? Is, you know, what, what is their background? And I would encourage you to see someone, to start there, and someone that's a good fit for you. So perhaps you're dealing with an issue that needs a more structured approach to care. In that case, maybe you do see a clinical psychologist. But what's going to matter more than anything is that you're comfortable talking with and working with that person. That's going to matter more than their preparation and their background. Because if you're not comfortable being vulnerable and working with that individual, you're not going to get as much out of that process. But I do want to say, if you're feeling that you're not okay over the course of this past year, it's okay that you're not okay. And there are many resources available, even through texting a therapist, all the way to, you know, those in-person, more in-depth interview processes. So whatever you need, look for an individual that's a good fit for you. And I also say, treat it kind of like a first date. If you go and you meet that individual and you think, ah, this, I, it didn't feel right, I just don't know, then you don't have to go back. Find someone that's gonna be a good fit for you so that you can really be engaged in that therapy process. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Carmi, would you like to add how you help your families? I know you're in a unique situation where you're caring for two different populations. How do you help your patient population kind of understand how to navigate that system and get the access to care that they need? 
So, and this is something that the the bulk of my career has been with behavioral health integration. And it's moving away from this silo of, oh, you have to see a mental health professional. Most people don't see a mental health professional. Do you know, and and when they know that they need to, that's great that then we can help maybe find resources, referrals. I say that but it's actually quite difficult finding people in mental health for you to be able to see in the moment. So I prefer the idea of mental, everybody should be doing mental health. Most people go to their primary care doc whenever they're talking about these things. And so mine is for other healthcare professionals that are not in mental health, though I think everyone is in mental health, (laughs) is the idea of opening up the conversation. I mentioned somatic disorders. When you have someone that's complaining about stomach aches or headaches or things like that. Yeah, you do the full workup, but it's also very helpful to ask about their stress levels. You know, one of the things I, and it's such a, and again, big proponent of the use of motivational interview. I love scales. I love numbers. It helps us know kind of if we're moving forward or backwards. So I ask my clients, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, zero being awful, terrible, 10 being it's awesome, everything's great. Where's your mood right now? How are you feeling right now? And if they say, you know, I, I'm a five, then I, you know, I was like, okay, well, why, why not a, why not a two? What's going right? Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, it's it's not a two because these things. I do have this. I have these people that love me. I do have people I can talk to. I'm better off than other people. All those kinds of things. And then I said, why why didn't you say a nine? Well, because of these things in my life. Because remember, stress does, we don't have to put a quantity or a quality on stress. It's whatever is affecting that person. It's their perspective. Mm-hmm. So I want to get that for them. So they say, it's it's these things. It's, it's coronavirus. It's all this other stuff. And then I turn around and say, and this is quite easy to do. It really is. It seems like it takes a long time. It doesn't. And here's why I think it's so great as healthcare professionals, because it gives me a treatment plan and goal that they you've given me. So then I turn around and say, so this seems to be stressing you out, all these things. Of those things, which one is your highest priority stressor? Which one should you, would you like to work on first? And I'll tell you nine times out of 10, the answer is sleep. And then so they'll say, you know, if I could just get some sleep or do this. Okay, that's the one we can work on. And so then I say, what are you doing? What are you doing for that? Well, I do this, I do this, I do this. I document that. And then I say, and then I give them some little education points, you know, sleep hygiene or various things. So then I document that I also provided an intervention. It can even be as simple as things like, you know, caffeine intake, you know, and I'm using sleep as just kind of an easier example. But every healthcare professional should be able to do this. And I think using that, it empowers the patient. It helps me then as a healthcare professional think I've given them or helped them articulate the treatment plan. Mm-hmm. So I think it doesn't have to just be someone in mental mm-hmm. health doing this. I think every healthcare provider can do it. To me, you know, I talked a long time about it, but it's a five-minute conversation that can save mm-hmm. 55 minutes of, the, of another conversation, the next appointment. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing, Carmi. It looks like we're almost out of town. And I do have one more question that I would like to answer. And Carmi kind of brought up pieces of it is that, you know, mental health is everyone's responsibility. So what type of information should we share with other healthcare 
professionals, like what signs and symptoms should they look for? What resources should they make sure they have available in their clinics? And I'll start with you, Marcus. Well, uh, as always, you know, deviations from baseline. Uh, mm -hmm. Every time we assess the mental health status or even response to psychopharmacotherapeutic agents, we always have to account for the environment and what's happening and deviations from baseline. But I would say that uh, we need to make sure that the basic needs of the person are being met. Is the person going hungry? Is the person really getting enough sleep, like it was mentioned here, right? So I think that, uh, you know, make sure the person know that there are federal and state level, even community-based, faith-based organizations providing relief on those very basic needs. Uh, but I would say keep an eye for deviations from what you know to be the, base, the patient's baseline is a good place to start. Thank you. Thank you so much. Erica, any other additional recommendations? I think my colleagues have kind of hit hit it on the head there. I love the comment about sleep that Carmi made. If you aren't sleeping well, you're not going to pay attention and you're not going to manage your mood well. So sleep is essential to good mental health. What we eat and our habits will help uh, either improve things for us or will make things worse for us. As Carmi mentioned earlier, alcohol use can seem like a good idea in the moment, but it is a depressant, so we may actually feel worse after. Alcohol also disrupts sleep and reduces the sleep quality. So what we eat, what we drink, how we sleep, and what we do, how we're spending our time. Again, to that social media piece, if we're spending hours on social media, we can expect our mood to suffer. So these habits, these very small things we do in our day are actually unbelievably important to whether we have good mental health outcomes or poor mental health outcomes. Thank you, Erica. Carmi, is there anything else you would like to add for our audience to take away with them today? Sure, just a couple more things. I think my colleagues have, have given some excellent resources and excellent talking points for not just mental health professionals, every professional. I think there are also things like apps, some great apps on the market for wellness. Uh, a lot of them are free. Sometimes they have paid features, but you can still get a lot of great things for free mm -hmm. off these apps. Mm -hmm. The CDC has a pretty comprehensive website. If you just Google uh, CDC, COVID mental health. It will come up with a really great one-stop shopping for some of this. Um, you can scroll through again, the crisis, all, all various numbers, the crisis hotline. Uh, I think they even break it down according to children under another tab, if you're worried about that. Um, the last thing I kind of would like to leave people with is again, having, having that toolkit, doing those things. But here, ultimately, I, I do want to give a nod to this idea that even when people have resources, and I love that we're talking about mental health, but sometimes we don't fund mental health. And even if we fund mental health, getting people to the resources can be a very difficult thing to navigate. If you have insurance, it's difficult. There's a six month waiting list to get in with some people. And that's if you have insurance. And you're already talking about people that are overwhelmed, trying to navigate an overwhelming process. That's why I do think apps, the CDC website, even just having that conversation 
you know, um, we, I don't need you to do psychotherapy. I need you to do supportive therapy. And every healthcare professional can support somebody in need just through listening. And so I think, again, being open to our clients, looking for any, like uh, Marcus said, deviation from the norm, like Erica said, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, things like sleep nutrition, all those things we take for granted are the hugest components to our overall health. So I think, again, Mm -hmm. having those things, having a couple of great resources in your back pocket to suggest, but being open Mm -hmm. to ask the questions Mm -hmm. is the most important thing that we can do Mm -hmm. as healthcare professionals. Mm Thank you so much. This has been such a great discussion on mental health, a subject that tends to be shied away from sometimes. So thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you all in the audience for being with us today. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.